This is Gene Therapy for Hemophilia, Dream or Reality, a show on behalf of the Canadian Hemophilia Society. Here's your host, David Page. It's a real pleasure to introduce our guest for today's podcast, Dr. Durhan Wangrieger. Dr. Durhan Wangrieger is a longtime friend of the Canadian Hemophilia Society, going back more than 30 years, including four years as CHS president during the 1990s. Health coach, trainer, frequent lecturer, and author, she's the president and CEO of the Canadian Organization for Rare Diseases and chair of Rare Diseases International. Dr. Juan Rieger will help us understand how gene therapy might be funded in Canada. Durhan, we've known each other forever, so I'm going to use your first name. Welcome, and thanks for doing this. No, thank you so much, David, and you are sadly right. We have known each other forever. Durhan, what makes decisions around funding gene therapy so challenging? compared to more traditional drug therapies? Our financing and investment in access to rare disease therapies was never, ever considered in the kind of finance models we have. What we're doing, I think, as we've heard many people say, we're using 20th century models for financing and for investment when we've got 21st century therapies. So the problem is not lie in the therapies themselves then the problem does not lie in terms of whether these therapies should be funded or actually are cost-effective. The problem lies in the way that we have set up our ability to flow funds so that when we've got something like a gene therapy, it hits a brick wall, and it's just because we've got these antiquated funding systems. I suppose it's the fact that it's a one-time therapy as opposed to you know, a, a traditional you know, three times a week therapy that makes makes it a problem. It isn't just that, quite frankly, as you know. Some of the traditional continuous therapies can actually be on a regular basis quite expensive. But you're right. The fact is we're loading up the cost of the therapies, a lifetime worth of cost, as you might say, into a one-time payment. And quite frankly, if you think about it across a lifetime, of course, one million, two million, three million dollars is not a lot. I mean, you know, most people living with rare disorders and certainly hemophilia, where they've got really good therapies, are going to be expending more than that over the course of their lifetime. But the challenge is, as you say, we're loading it up front and we're not realizing the benefits of what that lifetime treatment is going to be. So our financing system is all wrong. It's like I'm buying a house and I'm saying, okay, you have to pay for the whole thing up front. I'm sorry, you can't mortgage it. And yes, we know you've got a deluxe house and it's going to be made out of stone. It's going to last for the next 50 years and you can probably leave it to your grandchildren. But guess what? I'm going to ask you to pay for it all up front, and I'm going to disregard the fact that you're going to have tremendous value for it later on. It, it, it's, a, it's a trick of financing. So even if this system is outmoded, that's what we're dealing with. Can you describe what that therapy is for, first of all, approving and then later funding gene therapies, including those for hemophilia? I mean, gene therapies are the future. I was just coming back from a conference, a couple conferences, one on absolutely funding and financing advanced uh, therapies, including gene therapies in the U.S., and another one, again, with the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, which is looking at 
the whole host of cell and gene therapies that are coming in now. I think the feeling is that there will be eight therapies that will be approved by the end of this year. But as we know, into the future, there are going to be 20, 30, 40 therapies that are going to be approved. One of the exciting things I heard, and it really is exciting, is that rare gene therapies are not just going to be for rare diseases. They're going to be for all diseases. And people who have much more chronic diseases could have diabetes. You could have cardiovascular disease. You could have different forms of neurological diseases. All of those, once we've identified the genes and we're able to actually produce the therapies, are going to be actually be able to take advantage of these gene therapies. And that's a game changer. I mean, not only is it a game changer in the sense that these therapies are actually going to have to become much cheaper, but there's going to be a huge demand for them. And they're going to have to look at a different funding model because at the end of the day, it's going to save a lot of money in terms of healthcare. Think of Alzheimer's, think of ALS, think of neuromuscular diseases, but also think of heart disease. Think of all the different types of cancers. What we need to do then is to absolutely change our funding models as we get more and more of these diseases for more uh, therapies for more and more people. And it's just not a matter of saying economies of scale. It really is a matter of recognizing the tremendous value and benefit they have. From my point of view, it's a matter of how do we get some money up front? And this is what we need to rethink. I mean, think about what happened in terms of developing these therapies. The U.S. Orphan Drug Act, the European EMA, Japan, others said, we know we have to provide incentives. We have to provide investment funds for companies in order for them to make these therapies because they are not going to be cost effective or affordable right off the bat to make But nobody thought about, okay, how do we fund these once they come on the market? I'm proposing we need an investment fund for therapies to be made available. So you've got hemophilia. I can fund you over a course of 30 years, or I can have an investment fund allow you to have that therapy now, and we can pay it back over time, right? So it really is the same thing. It's a financing gig. It's not really a matter of, are they effective? Are they going to be cost effective? We just have to do difference in terms of how we finance and, you know, David, we have a real option in Canada right now. We have federal government came and said, I'm going to give you $1.5 billion for rare disease drug strategy. And our plea to the government is don't use that to buy drugs. Use that as a starter fund. Get these therapies started. And as they prove cost effective, as you build them into your system and you're able to ben- um, derive the benefits from them, you can pay it back. You're coming up with all kinds of ideas here, but I don't think Cadiz and Ines are there yet. I think they're still looking at, at this drug and the, you know, this therapy in the same way they're looking at all the past therapies. So, so what will they take into account in deciding whether or not they think it's um, cost effective? You know what, David? It ain't up to Cata. It ain't up to INES. They're just the kind of accountants and the whole thing. They have nothing to do at the end of the day with whether something's actually going to be funded. And what they do need to do is do a different model, right? Again, give me a 30-year time horizon. And even if you take into consideration some of the challenges in terms of knowing what that 30 years is going to be, you need a different model of assessment. Their HTA models are really based on, as you know, the next slightly better therapy compared to the old therapy and looking at what they call the short-term evidence that's available. It's the wrong model. This is what I keep saying. The assessment model is wrong. The financing model is wrong. The way in which we count the benefits is all wrong. The therapies are there. The benefits are there. 
We just need to move them out of the way. They have no real role in this because what they're using, again, are old models that have no relevance. I mean, think about something, Dave. You know, when we first had the recombinant products, and you and I were in that battle together, and we came to the blood committee at that time, and we said we need recombinant products. And they came back and said, not cost effective. These products are really safe. Why don't we just keep giving people plasma? It took some real actually economics to really demonstrate to people these are cost effective and as you know not even 10 years later people are absolutely sure that is the right direction to go and now today 20 years later 30 years later nobody would absolutely doubt that recombinant products biologic products are absolutely the way to go nobody thinks about it and they're even cheaper exactly and i will say 20 years from now we will be in the exact same place with gene therapies so i'm saying we're in a transition stage let's get through this think about what it's going to look like 20 years from now when we got gene therapies demonstrated value and for the masses how are we going to actually make those available? We're going to have to do it by being able to push the monies up front. Okay, but we're, we're dealing with health technology assessments today, actually, for two gene therapies for hemophilia B. I put myself in the place of the governments who decide and, and perhaps the people who recommend to governments. And there are many uncertainties uh, with hemophilia uh, gene therapies. Variable response from person to person. Some people get no response. Variable durability. Some, some people, it lasts a long time, others not so long. So how are they going to, to deal with these uncertainties? Ah, but it's like any other kind of treatment, right? Transplants. We get variable responses. Some people do really well with a transplant. Any kind of surgery, any kind of intervention, you've got variability in terms of the response. You don't go back and say, oh, okay, doctor, you get paid X amount based on the success of your patient. Your patient lives two years, you get paid more. Your patient only lives, you know, six months. Gee whiz, I'm not going to pay you very much. We even it out by looking at what the overall value is. And again, I'm coming back to say, David, we need to put forth different models of how we assess this and quit trying to use methods of assessment that have no opportunity to tell us how this is going to work. Everything is uncertain. Every you know person is variable. I don't care whether it's gene therapy or whether it's getting a statin, right? We don't know. And we actually have to give it to people. We have to monitor them and we have to see how they're doing. And we can say, okay, we'll pay you on an individual basis, but that's stupid. We pay on a population basis and we even out the rough edges. Some people are doing super well and you'll get huge benefits out of it. Some people are not going to do so well. So that's okay. We have spending more and getting less, you know, lifetime quality of life, but that's just the way that it works. You mentioned buying a house uh, a little, a few minutes ago. Is that one of the models that you would sell a gene therapy like you sell a house with, with you know, annual payments over a number of years? I could tell you if I were really rich, what I would do is actually put out an investment fund. And I would say, here, government, let me invest in access to these therapies. And as you get benefits, as people actually are able to live better, return to work, use less hospital resources, have less knee replacements, et cetera, et cetera, you give me that money back. And I can guarantee you, you will make money doing that. So, yeah, I think the challenge is that getting the government to push that money up front. And as I say, in Canada, they've given us $1.5 billion. Don't fund a treatment with that. Invest it, make some starter funds, and be able to realize the benefits of it. I know it's hard to think about, but quite frankly, it is the only pathway for it. Putting the money up front 
Wouldn't that be a limitation on the number of people you can treat in, in, in at the beginning? Nope. Think about it. We've got how many therapies that we have that have these high uncertainties? We have very small numbers. That's the nice thing about being rare. We have two that are approved and maybe one or two that are coming you know, this year uh, that I know of. Yeah. But I mean, you know, quite frankly, they're not that expensive when you think about it overall. $3 million over your lifetime is a pittance when you think about it, right? So it's, it's really not exorbitant when we think about these kinds of prices. I mean, I'm not saying what the right price is. I'm not saying $3 million is the right thing to do. But I think for us to actually agonize over it as a cost, as opposed to how we're going to finance it, is the wrong way to go. I mean, the cost itself is a cost. I mean, $1 million, $2 million, $3 million, what's the difference? Not much. You talk about an investment fund that would be able to pay those 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 therapies up front. Are there other models that, that, that you could look at? I mean, Europe obviously is doing some amortization, right? So let us see how we can amortize it. I mean, certainly there are huge calls for public-private partnerships for foundations to step in. Again, the foundations would not be funding it for life, but what they could do is actually do again. Let's do some starters. Let's get people started onto it. And then... As the system is able to get, get the benefits from it, they're able to absorb it into the system. So, I mean, that's the goal, right, is to, as you say, how do we offset what looks like something that we didn't budget for? But over time, we need to start budgeting for it. That's easy. Now we know what the budget impact is going to be. Build your budgets next year, but also then realize the benefits of it and bring that back into the budget. What is the role of, of patient organizations like like uh, Canadian Hemophilia Society and, and yours, Canadian Organization for Rare Disorders, in 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 representing the patient perspective in this you know in this debate about 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 funding? You know, David, at the end of the day, is not much different than what we did thirty years ago. We got people to advocate, and we got people to kind of call on the ethics of it and to make the case. We got people to write in to their representatives to say, this is the right thing to do. But at the end of the day, you and I, we sat at the table and we basically said, let's come up with a solution that's going to work for the government, that's going to work for the payers, and it's going to work for the patients. And that is the only thing. At the end, at the end of the day, it's all negotiation. I love this. Uh, we have a model that we're actually going to be talking about. It's a framework for reasonableness. Let us be reasonable at the table. Let's negotiate. So if the fact is not everybody's going to get it at once, it's going to be a huge impact. Who in the hemophilia community should get it this year? Who should get it next year? Who should get it the year after that? How do we actually make it so it can be brought in on a basis, right, in which we can actually accommodate it? And then over time, the number of new patients is going to be small. Think about SMA. In the beginning, we had a bolus of people. Now it's like one patient a year maybe that's actually going to require this treatment. We don't have, you know, 40 patients that are coming in every year. So again, let's negotiate it. Let's all be reasonable. Let's look at who really needs to have it and how do we start it. I mean, and certainly some of it was actually what we're looking at now. We talk about public-private partnerships. We talk about charitable donations. Yeah, We're right now looking at a model that we call, let's call it compassionate access toward sustainability. So the idea is that we will work with a system and we will get the companies and get funders or foundations to support our bringing it in, help to set up the system so that obviously not everybody can do gene therapy at every place. So it can be brought in and then 
The governments, the payers, make an agreement that when it works and as it works, they will take it over because they're the ones that are going to realize the benefits of it. In the U.S., we're seeing some interesting models that say, okay, what I need to do is a guarantee that the patient I'm going to fund for gene therapy is going to stay in my risk pool, in my insurance pool, for a period of 10 years. That way I can meet the benefits, right? You can't leave. If you leave, then there's a penalty assessed or if you go to another insurer, then that insurer has to pay back. So there are models of looking at it. And again, I say it's just funny money being moved around. It has nothing to do with whether or not the patient should get it or the benefits to the patient. You talk to governments here in Canada a lot. How are they reacting? I think they hear us the way they always do. They listen to loud voices in the streets. They listen to their politicians. So we need to get people there to kind of rile them up, to get them to listen and be reasonable. And then we have to sit at the table and we have to say what's reasonable. They're now setting up this implementation advisory group for this, you know, rare disease drug uh, strategy. We're hoping that within the confines of that group, we can actually do some reasonable negotiations. But yes, we need the pressure of the patients, the clinicians, and the families to actually keep people at the table and focused. Johan, you know, gene therapy for hemophilia has been a dream for hmm, almost four decades. And it's now a reality in some countries, in, in Europe and in, in, in the U.S., though not many patients have been treated yet. What do you think the chances are of it becoming a reality here in, in Canada? And, and how soon? 100% it will be a reality. I think we are committed in Canada to actually providing the optimal care for certainly people living with bleeding disorders, in part because it's a community that's been able to demonstrate that when you treat people well, they actually do perform well and that they are valuable members of society. So I think we already have that. And I think, quite frankly, it is a matter of time for us to get what I call, again, some ability to finance it appropriately. But I will say 100%, and my push is for Canada to do what we did with recombinant factors. We should be really at the front, and we should be close to number one in terms of making this a reality because we know how to do it. And we know, you know, we've got the communities, the clinicians, and everybody on site. So my vision, David, is that hemophilia and Duchenne's and, you know, sickle cell disease, where these therapies are coming in, we're going to find some pathways that will allow us to be right at the front. So you're optimistic. I am so optimistic. I really believe that Canada wants to do well by its people. They need to just see her and see the solutions. And I believe that the patients are really committed to seeing this through. So we've got the right ingredients. And of course, we have great clinical community and we have the ability to track and monitor these these uh, therapies. We have all the pieces in place. There is no reason why we cannot rise to that occasion. Well, that's really great to hear your, your ideas and your optimism. You give me more hope um, just listening to you. Thank you, Johan. And we really appreciate your contribution to this podcast series. Thank you. And I hope people don't think it's just a pipe, you know, pipe dream and that I'm kind of blown off the top. You and I both know we have gone through times which were pretty damn dark and pretty tough. And people said it ain't going to ever happen. And guess what? It does happen. And we're going to make this one happen. We'll get this podcast out to everybody and hopefully some politicians will listen to it and, uh, and learn from it. Well, you see, and the very fact that you're doing this really is a credit to the community, right? You're not sitting on your hands and hoping somebody will actually you know, support you. It's how do we get out there and how do we lead the parade? This is it. Thanks again. Thank you. For more information on gene therapy, we invite you to check out other podcasts in the series and to read the Canadian Hemophilia Society booklet 
All About Gene Therapy, available on the CHS website, hemophilia.ca. For more information, we invite you to check out more episodes in this series, Hemophilia Gene Therapy, Dream or Reality. This podcast series was made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Pfizer Canada to the Canadian Hemophilia Society.